The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 through 14. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, each even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning to you. If I haven't met you, and again, those who are visiting with us, my name is Stacy Croft, and I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Presbyterian Church on Music Row. And would love to grab time with you if you, if I haven't already, uh, if sign, make sure you sign your uh, name in that black book or grab me afterwards at the reception or in, email me, one of those things. I'd love it. People always say, does he really get coffee with people? Yes. When I send an email to you, and some of you may have received it, um, you're like, oh, is that one of those emails? No, I'm serious. I love getting coffee and lunch and hearing your story and, 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 uh, and hearing not only your story, but you being to, uh, able to know our church and ask questions and those type things. Well, here's a question for you. Would you ever know um, fake news if you, if you heard it? How do you, how do you know spot fake news? That's kind of the big thing lately is how do we know what's fake and what's true? Not too long ago, there was a, um, a fake news clickbait that was sent out, and you could click on it, and it was saying all sorts of things and about you know politics and those type of things. And when you clicked on it, it took you to this specific blog page that said, everything you just clicked on is completely false. Why would you click on this? <laughs> and people are trying to teach us, don't click on everything. How do you know false news? It's actually um, reported that as Americans, typically, we consume information so rapidly that when we go on and it has a .com or .org behind it, that we're very quick to click on it or to type it in or look it up, especially if it pops up in Google and those type of things. And the reason is, is because we want to get quick information. 
And we're not sure all the time, and we don't take the time, this is the biggest part, to actually fact check what we read. So oftentimes, we talk about things as though we're experts, there's like stats on all this, about how we read maybe an article or two and feel as though we're experts in a specific field or area or like to talk about it simply because we've read one, maybe two articles. But do we know if it's true? That the time we don't take to fact check or look things up is very fascinating. And, um, and you, can, you can look at that there. So I connect that to the fact that when a preacher stands up and begins to say, why is it important to read the Bible or to pray? You're like, duh, I'm in church, right? Like the, you expect me to probably say something like that. Just like last week, the, the thing that we're walking through on in our vision is Worship Connect Serve. Last week, we really put forward the fact that gathering and worship every Sunday is vital to our growth as, as not just um, Christians individually, but together, that we have to do this together. Today, we're talking about personal worship. Like, how are you in the Bible? How are you praying? And, and, and anytime, a pre- again, a preacher says that, you're like, okay, great, I need to do more of that. I need it. But I want you to know why. Like, I want us to dig in. I don't want it to be like this dot com. Here's Stacy throwing out another, hey, as the preacher, I have the mic, I get to stand up here, so Bible's good. Like, why? Why is it important? Why is it vital to us? Why do these words and why does God speak to us and then ask us to speak back? Why is that so powerful? Because I don't think it's the what. I think it's more of the why. If we understood why those things are powerful and important, it would draw our hearts more into it. See, I think these things are typically called in theological terms the means of grace. Means of grace, that is the means by which we grow in grace in a relationship with God. But what we have typically done, and if you're, even if you're here and you're kind of asking or learning about Christianity or exploring again, that means of grace for many of us, and maybe you've heard this or been burned by the church because of it, We've replaced the means of grace, making it an end of grace. That is, we say, if I, with my Bible, if I come to church, if I take communion, if I pray, then I am with God. That is God. That's it. Check. Done. But they're not supposed to be the end in of themselves. They're supposed to magnify God. They're supposed to enlarge our relationship with God himself, not just the practices of. And so that's why we do them. So we're going to look... At Psalm 19, it's actually a very powerful psalm written by David himself that really tells us two things, that God speaks and we speak. That's all it says. It's one of the most perfect psalms. If you ever want a psalm just to tuck in your back pocket, if you're kind of learning the Bible, learning theology, you want to go back to, okay, what is the Bible about? This psalm perfectly divides both the, the word of God and how he speaks and how we speak back to him. How do we pray? It brings it right to us. And how does he do that? It begins in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. There's a speech there. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice, I mean constantly, if you can't hear it once, you hear it again. The voice is going out and creation is bringing this voice. God speaks through his creation. They cry out the glory of God. And the first thing, though, is that it's easy for us to hear the voice of creation and stop there. Many times what we can do is hear the voice of creation and go, ooh, that's amazing. But it's actually proclaiming someone else. 
It's actually putting forward something more than that. See, creation can only take us so far. Creation itself is to point us to that there is a creator. But oftentimes we can find that creation itself fills that longing that we really think we should have without the creator involved. But it can't do so much. There's an article written, and I don't know if you've seen this. There's all these like remakes of movies and uh, comeback things. And one was... Uh, particularly on Avatar, you know, James Cameron's trying to bring back Avatar 2. I have no idea what, the, you know, if you ever saw Avatar 1, I think it was like the highest grossing movie ever or something. Um, but in this article written in the Times, uh, it was fascinating because the, the, the author of this article wrote, Why, what's the difference between nature and our longing for nature to meet those needs? That's what they say. The question is whether nature actually deserves a religious response. Traditional theism has to wrestle with the problem of evil. If God is good, why does he allow suffering and death? But nature is suffering and death itself. Its harmonies require violence. Its circle of life really is a, a cycle of mortality. Religion exists in part precisely because humans aren't at home with these cruel rhythms. We stand half inside a natural world and half outside. We are beasts with self-consciousness, predators with ethics, moral creatures who yearn for immortality. So this, is, this is an agonizing position. <clears throat> and there's no escape upward or no God to take on flesh and come among us as a Christmas story has it, a deeply tragic one. Pantheism, which is uh, the, the idea that pantheism, that creation had, all voices are equal, right? That's what pantheism essentially says. Pantheism offers a different sort of solution, a downward exit, an abandonment of our tragic self-consciousness, but a reemerger with the natural world. But the problem is nature cannot take us back. See, what the author here is saying is theism, be it I don't know if this person is a Christian or not, provides a much better, Bigger, better idea, because pantheism says all voices are equal, that even being God itself. That's what it means. It'd be like this. If we were listening to our musicians play, and all we listen to is the harmony, right? The harmony is so vital. The harmony brings out what the, 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 uh, the, the main voice of the chorus. But if we didn't have the main voice, we just had harmony, it could sound kind of different for us. It could throw us off. It, throw, it can throw a song off. If, be it that, the harmony is even off pitch and there's no other voice, larger voice, to guide the harmony about where to go, then it can't. This is what creation is. Creation is the harmony that brings the ultimate voice forward. It is the speech that pours forth knowledge. It is the harmony that lifts the voice of God and the character of God up out. And what happens is if we focus too much on the harmony and we listen for it alone, it can drive us off of that. It can create, and that's what pantheism does. It can, and, and most of us would say we're not pantheists in this room. But many times we can live that way. Many times we can look to creation's voice to tell us how to live rather than creation pointing to the one who has made things to teach us how to live. And that's what his word does. It's different than any other voice. It lifts out above the harmony. Everything is to point to it because the harmony itself can't hold it or sustain it. It's pointing to the main vocalist. That is God himself. And, and so when we look to his word, what we're doing, the creation only points us to it. 
it reveals him, him, God himself, that he wants to be close to us. Notice, it's so fascinating, this psalm. It, some people think it was almost two psalms put together. Because in verse 6 and 7, it almost looks like this complete change. It moves from 6 where it says it's rising from the end of the heavens and the circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. This beautiful picture of creation. And then boom, right into the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. How do these hang together? What he's doing is he's setting up for us an apologetic. That means a defense of, hey, all this harmony lifts up the main vocalist, that is God. And then what does God say to us? How does he speak? Through his word. How does his voice make sense of all the other voices? How does his voice, and what does it mean for us to hear what he says to us in his word in order for us to make sense of every other voice in our life that is crying out to listen? It's not fake news, so to speak. And he's not even saying that creation is bad in its voice. But have we done enough understanding of the main voice, the main one that's drawing out, to help us understand everything around us? It's so important to see that. This is why in verse 7 it says this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It moves right into what's almost like a proverb. It says making wise the simple. The word simple is another word in Hebrew that means fool. It, it means that it doesn't mean dumb. It means actually uh, or unsophisticated, it means people who are easily led astray. Simple is a word that it says people are carried away by easy words. It's almost like this. Where it, simple is like someone always looking for someone to tell them something. And immediately when they do, they're like, oh, that's, that's it. That's perfect. It's a quick jump. It's a quick clickbait. It's something like that that jumps in there. As one of my friends said, it's like someone who's feeling insecure, and so they really need someone to tell them what to do or where to go. You know those moments when you feel insecure, and maybe you don't even recognize it. I recognize this sometimes in my own heart, and I'll ask uh, my wife or a friend a question who really knows me, and they'll say, wait, are you asking this question for me or you? It's more about me. It's more about what I need, the reassurance, those kind of things. It's coming from a place where I don't really know and I need someone else to tell me. What God's word is saying is it makes wisdom of us. See, foolishness takes this world and it begins to say, this world and the simpleness of it is to look to anything to help us shape the world around us. What wisdom really is, is God saying, hear my voice and know that this world is shaped around me. Otherwise, all those harmonic voices of creation are going to lead you into a place where it wraps around you and you will be lost. You will look to things that cannot guide you. You will make them that. You'll look to things that try and help shape the world around you and it cannot do it. They are to revive the soul. That means refresh. That means bring out, brought back, brought back to life. I, just this last week, one of the most godly women I know actually lost her battle with cancer, Wendy Martin. I don't know if, you know if many of you may have even attended that funeral. Many of you may know uh, Maddie and Ed Wad who are in our church. They may have, I haven't seen them, but they may even be here this morning. Uh, that's her mother. And I was able to sit in this funeral, and I've known Wendy. She was the first person to greet us when we moved to Nashville 14 and a half, 15 years ago. When Megan and I moved here and um, 
And there's a basket on our front porch of full of what was then bread and company, treats and stuff to welcome us. And one of the things that at our funeral that was so beautiful was not just hearing about all her life, but the over and over what the repetition of she taught us not just how to live, but how to die. That was one of the most profound things I heard. And even jokingly, Wendy, in her last three years of fighting cancer, as she was saying things like, don't believe what the internet tells you about taking blueberries, eating blueberries, because blueberries, they say that it beats cancer, but it's not beating it for me, okay? So she would say, she was just funny and with it the whole time. And yet she said, as people were watching her, as she, her words and her life showed that she wasn't just showing people how to live, but showing them how to die. What voice was it most that spoke to her? What voice spoke into her suffering, into her view of death, so much so that it transformed not just the way she lived in her final moments, but transformed the people around them to see death itself as diminished, as not having the power that it should. Can creation do that? Can creation do that for us? Because here's what happens. If we begin to wrap ourselves around the voice of our own suffering, and this can easily happen to us, uh, we've, we've all encountered this, but if we begin to listen to the voice of our own suffering more than we do of the voice of God himself, then what happens? Our whole world begins shaped around our own suffering. It begins to do everything else, and it begins to drive our, what, what we would call our theology, our view of God, our view of relationships, our view of everything. And instead of knowing how to die well, Death becomes the thing that we just are so angry, we can become embittered, we can do that. We could do that with anything, insert anything. What transformed Wendy Martin and transformed those around her seeing that and what was proclaimed at her funeral in a funeral showing, and this is what the Bible says, that death often shows us life, especially when it's attached to the Redeemer. Because it shows where that voice fits in context. Look, at you could fit in anything. What voice informs you how to live? What voice do you listen to most in creation that has a louder harmonic tune than the main vocalist, God? It could be politics. It could be your job. It could be just religiosity. It could be a person in your life. Who determines it? Where are you trying to shape your world around what cannot be shaped. And yet the word of God is saying, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing in the heart. They're pure, they're clean, they're true. These aren't just adjectives describing just a word out in the air. But they're describing God himself. They're describing the one who is impure. And the word pure, even as we said earlier for the name Catherine, is a word that means unmixed. God's words are unmixed. They're not full of other things. You can trust that they are true and right to revive our soul. The only thing that can revive our soul, that can show us that God is with us, that can make a psalmist say this at the end, more in verse 10, more to be desired than gold, than even much fine gold, sweeter than the honey, the drippings of the honeycomb, or as if these words that God is saying aren't just something that we do as an ends of grace, but a means by which we listen to God, our rock and redeemer, who can transform us. Who can actually say, I love you more than your suffering. You're more valuable than the work you put in in overtime on the weekends. 
You're more important and beautiful than the way you actually see yourself in a mirror every single day. This is what we must learn now because this voice is not just another voice. It's different than any other because it speaks in love to where you are. And what does it do? It calls a response. Notice this doesn't end. It could have ended with verse 10. It almost seems like it could end with that, like this elation of more to be desired. But where does it end? It ends with David actually speaking back to God. It ends with him talking about the real him. Verse 11, moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. He reflects back in them. He sees them. He sees what it means. And, and what is this? It's prayer. This is simply prayer. It's his, his review. It's his reflection into the word. Look, for, for a preacher to talk to you about prayer, prayer is one of the most deeply personal things we could talk about because it's us speaking back. And if you notice what he says here, it is incredibly personal. Oftentimes the Psalms throw me off because of how honest David can be and others who write these because they're just kind of saying who they are. And we get tripped up a lot in thinking that prayer needs to be these grand words or we have to use things. We have to, and I was joking with a, a few of you last week about that prayer isn't just us bowing our heads and closing our eyes. It's more than that. It's engaging with a God who's spoken to us. He is simply responding to what God has given him. And he sees the real him. I love, I love what Flannery O'Connor, one of my favorite Southern writers, I don't know if you like Flannery, she's amazing, she has a prayer journal, and this is what she said. Hear her honesty. And this feels often for me. Maybe it's more reflective of how I can feel. She said in her prayer journal, Dear God, I cannot love thee the way that I want to. You are the slim present of a moon, of a moon that I see in myself as the earth's shadow that keeps me from seeing the moon. What I'm afraid of, dear God, is that, I'm, is that my self-shadow will grow so large that it blocks the whole moon and that I will judge myself by the shadow that is nothing. I do not know you, God, because I am in the way. That oftentimes, as often as honest as Flannery is being in prayer, we so get focused on ourselves in prayer. Here's what prayer really is. This is what Flannery is getting at. Prayer is about us coming messy. It's not about us throwing up a rope and saying, God, come down to me. It's actually about God speaking first and him drawing us up into himself, bringing us to himself. Paul Miller, who wrote this book, and this is a helpful book. If you're wanting a book on prayer, some one of the best books I've, I've read on it called A Praying Life. And he says this. He says, prayer, <clears throat> one of the subtlest hindrances to, to prayer is the most prosaic pervasive. It's our trust in ourselves and our talents that makes us structurally independent of God. We, need to throw, we don't need to throw a rope up to God or have the right words or do the right thing to bring him to us. It is simply responding back. He has revealed himself. Here's the beautiful thing. He speaks. He is not hidden. Many of us in this room say, where is God? What's he doing? Is he hiding? The Bible is God saying, in a thousand different genres, poetry, history, law, narrative, 
in a million different ways through different people who are completely different in personality. Some had struggled with depression and anxiety. Some were persecuted. Some were in places of government. Some were places in, in their vocation of, 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 of not just preaching, but they were carpenters, they were fishermen. They did a million different things, a million different people, and yet they all did what? They had to respond to the word that was spoken to them. And how did they do it? The same way we do it now. It's no different because God has revealed himself. And if he has revealed himself, what our speaking back to him isn't trying to just talk things. It's actually revealing and knowing who we are. Notice what he says. And I read this in the confession, and I think it was important. Verse 12 and 13, he says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then, I shall, then shall I be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Look, us speaking back is us being known and knowing ourselves. If God, this is the thing that's amazing. It, it, having a friendship, and I've seen this so many times, you have different layers of friendship that you only know so much of someone if they've revealed themselves to you. You could spend years with someone. You could be roommates. One of my dearest friends who now lives in Chicago, we went on a um, uh, road trip through 11 states in nine days. And one of the things that we learned about each other, we had, already, we had grown up together. He was one of my closest friends from even like fourth grade, third grade. And it wasn't until after college that we actually did this. And then we got to, you're stuck in a car with somebody driving in one day 22 hours from Colorado to Tennessee <laughs> that you really know somebody. Idiosyncrasies. Things that drive you crazy. Things that are like, can we just pull over and I have 10 minutes alone? And then other moments where you're just like, are you serious? I've known you for years and I've never heard you say that. It's the only those moments when you're, when you're with them, when they reveal themselves. And God is saying, I have revealed myself in every way to you. I have given myself to you because I want to know you. And he, here's, here's the proof of it. He has come. Notice what he says. Let the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He's hearkening back to the fact that God enters into that space. What calls us to pray, to speak back to God, is because he comes. He doesn't just throw a word. He comes in flesh to show us. Look, the beauty of what this meal is, is your very representation that you get to speak back to a God that has spoken to you. You get to taste the flesh, the word made flesh. And what prayer is, is when you, we give you a moment of silence before you come up here. But prayer isn't just that. Prayer is actually you engaging God, even as you're walking up. It's taking a word from a song that we sing that drive us to the Lord. It's taking those moments when you hear the benediction in your semicircle up here to, to stop and go, Lord, Thank you for being my rock and redeemer. And what rock and redeemer were for them were, were hearkening back to the ancient of days, the fact that God buys them back as a redeemer from their sin and a rock that he takes the curse of being the one who is stable, the one who is of old, the one, just think of that image 
that God even gives them a physical, tangible image, just as we get a physical, tangible image of communing with God himself through this bread and wine. That's what we're doing. This is how the practice. Like we call these, again, means of grace because this is the means by which the magnifying glass goes over the Lord Jesus and you see him larger. Would you see him larger? Not yourself, not your sin, but him in taking these things and going to the word daily. Look, you're going to hear me say it. Here's the tagline for the preacher for the day. Get in your Bible. <laughs> Pray to God. Go to the word itself. Don't take my word for it. Don't take the clickbait if you want to call me that. Go to the word. Go to the Bible. Read it. One of my favorite quotes I've ever heard was when I was working with uh, <clears throat> a student across the street at Vanderbilt. He was from the British Virgin Islands. He had grown up all his life kind of hearing Christianity. He didn't really care much. And I said, hey, let's read Mark together. Let's just read a gospel. Haven't done it in a while. He's like, great. He read a few chapters and he came back to me after a couple weeks and he said this. I, this is not me. This is him reading. He goes, everything I said and everything I thought I knew about Jesus was nothing compared to what I just read. This is a guy who, total different place, in a fraternity, kind of doing his life, reads those words, and what has the impact? Not me. The exploration of knowing that. And what did he do? He merely spoke back in reaction. Prayer of thanksgiving for God's word. Let's stand together. As the children are let back in, and we go together to this. This is actually a kid's catechism, by the way, which I think is important for our hearts to, as children to come to answer this question, how can we be saved? Only by faith in Jesus Christ and in his substitutionary atoning death upon the cross. That's how we can be saved. Please be seated.